Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Okay, um, so for this month's podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. James Serple, who is a canine behavior researcher, and I was surfing the internet one day and discovered something called the um, CBARC, Canine Behavioral Assessment Research Questionnaire, thought it was kind of interesting, so I thought that Dr. Serpa would make an interesting speaker for our podcast since he studies canine behavior. So first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yes. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the veterinary school there, although I'm not um, a a veterinarian by trade. Um, I'm a biologist by trade, and I've been studying animal behavior for a long time, 40-something years. Wow. So... Obviously, you, you're interested in dogs. Did you grow up with a dog? I did, yes. A dog, a, a boxer dog called Bullet. <laughs> <laughs> so that was your your first dog. And, that was my first um, dog. Now I, then, a, now I have a dog called Atticus, who's a, a mixed breed dog. <laughs> okay. So you um, you know, obviously are interested in doing research about canine behavior. Is that what you started with in your career, or is that something that evolved over time? Um, Actually, I started studying bird behavior, but um, I guess when I finished my uh, graduate degree, I I decided there was no future in bird behavior, so I was looking at other things to study, and and then I got very interested in human-animal relationships, and um, I studied those for many years and published um, a book and several articles about that. And then um, uh, more recently, I've kind of uh, started to focus more on uh, companion animal behavior and welfare, so both dogs and cats. So can you um, tell us what is the CBARC? So the CBARC um, is very simple, really. It's just a a questionnaire uh, which we developed um, to ask dog owners about the typical behavior of their dogs. Um, it, I guess it sounds easier than it was in practice. Actually, developing a questionnaire turns out to be quite an elaborate process because you have to um, first uh, sort of build it, design it. Uh, you then have to pre-test it on various experts to make sure that you've included everything you wanted. And um, then you have to check uh, whether it's a reliable instrument and whether it's valid. In other words, whether it measures what you think it's measuring. And that whole process took about two years and quite a lot of research money to actually create this final questionnaire. And, so even, uh, so even though it looked simple, there was a lot of background work. There certainly was, yes. Um, and a lot of pre-testing and, uh, like I say, testing for reliability and validity. Um, but anyway, we finished up with this questionnaire, which was 100 questionnaire items. 
and they explore pretty much uh, every aspect of a dog's typical behavior in a home environment. Um, so it's asking the owner to report uh, how the dog behaves in you know, fairly typical day-to-day -day types of situations that most um, uh, dogs would encounter. And uh, the reason for developing really was because um, studying behavior is difficult. You really need to uh, be able to normally observe the animal that you're studying. And it's very difficult to observe uh, dogs that belong to people because most of the time they're invisible. In other words, they're in the house where you can't you can't just walk in and say, I want to observe your dog. Um, so that limits people to observing dogs, for example, in public parks and places like that. And uh, so I decided to take a different route, and that was to try and uh, use the owner as, a, as it were, a proxy way of observing the dog on the assumption that, you know, probably the owner knows more about that animal's behavior than anybody else does. Um, and the trick is really just to extract that knowledge from the owner in a, in a way that is sort of quantitative and reliable and, and valid. Um, how many dogs have you collected data for so far? Oh, <laughs> probably of the order of 50 or 60,000 dogs by now. <laughs> wow, that's a lot, a lot of, of data dogs. to analyze. Yeah. Um, so, um, so what are the practical uses of the the bark? It's had um, uh, it sort of it keeps developing new uses. I developed it originally as a research tool, you know, something that would help me do my research on dog behavior. Um, but more recently, it's acquired all kinds of other functions. For example, a lot of uh, working dog organizations now use it uh, as a kind of routine way of assessing the dog's behavior while it's living with the uh, puppy raisers. Um, so a lot of guide dog organizations use it. Um, other working dog organizations like, um, uh, um, you know, search and rescue type dogs and things like that uh, use it. And um, so that's one use. A more recent use uh, now is um, I developed a sort of slightly shorter version for use in animal shelters. And this is primarily something to give to people who are relinquishing their dogs to the shelter uh, to give the shelter an idea of how that animal behaved in its previous home and uh, whether they need to focus on particular aspects of that behavior to try and sort of rehabilitate the animal before adopting it out again. Um, so, you know, it keeps finding new uses. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm constantly surprised by the sort of novel ways that people have found to make use of it. And, you know, you're collecting that data from the owners, do they tend to have some bias? For example, if, if I'm thinking if I had a dog that I was bringing to the shelter because it wasn't very well behaved, I might be tempted to minimize the dog's character flaws. So have, yeah. have you found yeah. that happening? Well, that's interesting you should say that. Um, when we originally tested it back in oh, about 2005, we did a small study in uh, California in a California shelter uh, that involved actually interviewing people and asking them to complete the questionnaire, the full questionnaire, the sort of 100-item questionnaire when they uh, were relinqu relinquishing their animals. And there was some suggestion in that situation that people didn't uh, weren't completely honest about um, things like aggression towards family members. Oh, so they were they were reporting uh, 
we actually gave them, um, we actually told them three different things. One, one group we told uh, that the information they were providing would be highly confidential and wouldn't be shared with anybody. Uh, another group were told that the information they provided would be shared with shelter staff. And uh, the other group, I think, were told nothing in particular about what would be done with the data. And there was a suggestion in that first study that uh, um, the people who were told that the information would be shared um, tended to under-report aggression towards members of the family. So more recently, we repeated it on a much bigger sample of people in three different shelters. And we didn't interview them. That's to say that people were get kind of given the instrument to fill in by sh the shelter receptionist um, before they were allowed to relinquish their animal. And in that second study, we found no evidence of any bias whatsoever. However, we did ask at the beginning of the thing, uh, we just put in one question that says, do you currently have any problems with your dog, any behavioral problems with your dog? And what was interesting was that a lot of these people um, said no, and no problems with their dog. But when you looked at the dog's CBARC scores, you could see that these dogs had a lot of problems. And that suggests to me that, um, you know, if you ask someone directly, has your dog got any problems, they will, they will lie. They will, you know, they will deny that the dog has any problems. But when you actually ask them to report on the dog's behavior, they seem to be fairly honest, and um, <laughs> and I thought that was quite striking. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much is is lack of insight because I think you know everybody who's had a dog has had that experience where somebody's dog approaches their dog and and uh, and you're trying to say um you know your dog doesn't look very friendly and they're saying oh no 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 he he loves people just before he bites you <laughs> right 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 so and I don't know if it's you know, the person just doesn't have insight to recognize the problem. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's extremely and, interesting. And you raise a very good point because um, we don't really know why there's this discrepancy between what they answer to a direct question and how they respond to a question that describes the dog's behavior. But mm -hmm. you're right. It could be that they're simply um, rather clueless people. They don't, they don't understand dog behavior. And um, so when you say your dog has a problem and you think no, maybe because you think that's how all dogs behave. Um, and in fact, all dogs don't behave like that because we have lots and lots of data from people who, who don't take their dogs to shelters who report much, much lower levels of behavior problems than these people are reporting who are taking their dogs to shelters. And it raises all sorts of interesting issues about you know, the extent to which we could actually intervene and educate these people uh, to help them understand that, you know, their dog does actually have a problem and, and, and there are things that could be done about that, which would mean they wouldn't have to relinquish the animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it, it seems like that is a big part of the data you've collected is canine aggression. Did you, your research support the popular notion that certain breeds are higher in aggression, or were there some surprises? Um, well, it certainly supported the view that there are breed differences, but um, actually the results kind of were surprising. So what we found, and it's been replicated in many studies now, that um, small breed dogs are much more aggressive than large breed dogs. Um, and the most aggressive 
uh, breeds in our sample were things like uh, miniature dachshunds and chihuahuas. Um, and I think most of this uh, aggression is defensive. Um, so these very small breed dogs are tend to be more reactive, and I suspect they also are more fearful um, because they are very small and very vulnerable. And, and uh, maybe they learn to deal with that anxiety, that fear, by uh, showing defensive aggression. Um, when we looked at breeds like, uh, for example, the Pitbull Terrier, which everyone would assume would be more aggressive, we actually found it was pretty average in terms of the amount of aggression it showed towards people. Um, but it was uh, distinctly more aggressive towards other dogs. And this kind of agrees with the history of the breed, because we know that these dogs were used for dog fighting and mm -hmm. presumably were selected over time to show a higher level of this type of behavior. And uh, so it's, it, it was quite interesting with some expected results, but also some very interesting and unexpected ones. Yeah, because I, I work at an urgent care center, and I probably see one dog bite every one to two days uh -huh. on average. And so has any of your research given you any ideas on how we could reduce the chance of people getting suffering from dog bites? Well, I mean, I think probably the, the number one problem for dogs is that they lack adequate socialization when they're young. And there are lots of people to blame for that. I blame actually, in many cases, the veterinary profession, um, who commonly instruct uh, their owners to keep their puppies isolated until they have completed their vaccinations. And uh, I think this is a huge mistake. I know there are risks. Of course, there are risks from um, infections to puppies. Uh, but we need to get those kinds of risks in perspective. And uh, if we if we can locate other dogs that you know are properly vaccinated and are healthy, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be allowing puppies to play with them and have interactions with them. And um, I believe this would solve. Um, many of many many of the problems that are out there that I see every day when I'm walking my dog is other dogs that simply cannot get on with dogs that they have a real problem with other dogs and I think it's just that they were poorly socialized when they were young yeah I, I think that's got to be one of the things that um, always worries me when I thought, think about you know maybe I'll get my next dog from a, a shelter is you, you know, it might take you some time to figure out um, how that dog was socialized and and how well it's going to behave in a variety of circumstances. So how much of canine behavior do you think is nature versus nurture? I don't think you can really uh, separate the two or quantify the differences. Um, I mean, uh, clearly there are breed differences, which suggests there are there's some sort of genetic basis to these behavioral differences. Um, but, you know, genes are just, uh, if you like, a, uh, a set of rules um, on, on about how the organism is going to develop. But how it actually pans out is very much a function of the environment in which it's reared. Uh, so you can't really separate out the nature and the nurture components. They both are important. Um, uh, but... Uh, Dealing with the 
nurture, sorry, the nature component, in other words, the genes, is, is, a, is a longer story to write than it is to simply change the way we rear dogs, which is an easy thing to do if people can be brought round to the idea. Um, so I think you get more bang for your buck by foc focusing on nurture than focusing on nature. And what about when people, you know, fill out the CBARC questionnaire and then come back in a year or two and and fill it out again? Um, I'm just wondering how much does a dog's personality seem to be stable over time, or do you see certain changes? Um, in younger dogs, we obviously tend to see more change. So we are, we don't actually ask people to do this questionnaire until their dog's at least six months old, um, because we're well. Actually, it's for that reason we expect a lot of change. Um, but even in the interval between six months and one year, you will see changes in behaviour, quite consistent changes, which is something I often want to tell these people who are bringing their their unruly puppies into shelters and things. Um, mm -hmm. That you know this behavior will change as the dog matures. You know, you're dealing with a an adolescent, and, uh, uh, and and all adolescents have all kinds of behavioral problems, including human adolescents. So we uh, we need to be a bit more patient with our dogs and wait until they mature a bit because they will settle down. Um, mm -hmm. Once they're adult, uh, their behavior is fairly stable until, of course, they get to the other end of the life cycle and, and they start to show. Uh, cognitive changes associated with uh, what you might call canine dementia. Yeah, it was very interesting on my ride to um, this morning. I had to bring my car in to get fixed. I was listening to public radio, and they had a little brief article or brief uh, talk, um, somebody about canine dementia and you know, somebody trying to come up with actually pharmacological treatments um, so has any of your research looked at, um, you know, identifying dementia or cognitive changes in older dogs? We have looked at that. It's not published yet. Um, we were actually, we did a long-term study uh, in collaboration with the Working Dog Center here at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, looking at um, the search and rescue dogs that we used uh, during the 9-11 uh, attacks. And we've been following those dogs uh, with repeated CBARC um, evaluations over their entire lives, pretty much. And uh, we do indeed see behavioral signs of uh, cognitive decline uh, among, the old, in, um, among many of the older dogs. But the work's not published yet. Okay. And, uh, um, you know, looking online, I saw that, you know, a little brief write-up that said your career focus is pretty broad because you've looked at, you know, not just the canine behavior, but, you know, the research on the welfare of dogs and cats and the development of human attitudes towards animals, as well as the history and impact of human and animal relationships. So what are some of your other areas of interest in some of the books that you've published? Oh, um, well, I'm very interested in the whole uh, topic of human-animal relationships. Um, uh, I kind of uh, got interested in it through looking at the phenomenon of pet keeping and why people keep animals as pets. Um, I guess my background as a biologist is to look at everything through a kind of evolutionary lens. And if you look at pet keeping through a, an evolutionary lens, it's kind of puzzling because people um, aren't getting any practical benefit from most of these animals. 
whereas most of our domestic animals provide us with you know food or fiber or something useful pets don't provide us with those types of things so the question then is what do they give us and this opens up a whole uh, a new and fascinating area uh, to do with um, the importance of social relationships to human health and uh, we know that people's relationships with other people have a dramatic imp impact on their health um, so if you have lots of nice positive social relationships in your life uh, you're much less susceptible to all kinds of diseases like cancer like heart disease and the question then is whether if you can establish those sorts of relationships with pets um, can they also uh, produce measurable health benefits and the, the, the sort of there's a growing body of evidence now that indeed they can and we also have a better understanding of the mechanism by which animals can do this for us um, so that's a whole area uh, that fascinates me. I've done some research in the area, although not much recently, because it, it's very, very difficult research to do. Um, but uh, it's certainly an area of great interest. Yeah. So, do you have any thoughts on what it is that makes um, people, or at least some people, love dogs? Whether it's you're born with a dog-loving gene, or it develops over time? Because you know, I honestly can't remember a time in my life that I didn't love dogs. And I know my parents had a dog when I was born, but I mm. can't consciously remember that particular dog. And my father was clearly the, the dog lover in our family, um, even though he didn't have any pets when he was growing up as a child. Um, and, you know, my own husband was not particularly fond of dogs when we met, but um, now I don't think he'd want to be without one. So right. do you have any thoughts? Um, what makes certain people, you know, so fond of dogs? Yeah. Um, well, we, we don't know if there's some kind of innate difference, you know, whether some people are born with a, a special affection for animals. Um, but we do know that if you grow up with these animals, with dogs, cats, whatever it is, you are more likely statistically to have them as an adult. That doesn't mean that people who don't have that early experience can't grow to like these animals because that we also know and you described your husband as being in that category um, but there's very strong evidence showing that uh, early childhood exposure to pets and companion animals is uh, has a very formative influence and uh, so that's one clear predictor um, but you know there are other things going on in people's lives that may present obstacles to them owning um, pets you know, you know during the recent sort of epidemic of house foreclosures you know that illustrated very well that when people moved out of their own homes and had to move into rental accommodation uh, and with landlords who didn't allow pets that there was many shelters in some parts of the country saw a dramatic increase in the number of relinquished animals so just you know, many people just live in circumstances that prevent them having a pet, even though they might want one. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for talking with me. It's been a, a great conversation, and I'm sure that my listeners will probably go online and, and look up some of your research and read some of the things that you've done. Oh, there was one question I think I forgot to ask earlier, just kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit, is I'm sure that 
you know, you've got the sea bark, and you mentioned how it could be used in animal shelters and for as an intake for animals. And so, what advantages would you see to to a shelter using that as opposed to whatever method they're using currently? I don't think I would advocate using it instead of the other methods. I would advocate <laughs> using it in addition. So it's sort because, of a supplement. Yeah, it's a, 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 as a complementary uh, source of information about the dog. I would not. Um, I would not be comfortable with shelters only using the questionnaire as a reason, as, as their mm -hmm. as their justification for doing whatever they want to do with that dog. So um, it'd be just one more supplement. Well, I could see it. It kind of would be nice if you're using communication between shelters that you would definitely have sort of a standardized way of, of talking to one another. Um, Absolutely. You know? I'm all for standardization, and that's proven to be very, very useful, for example, among uh, working dog organizations, because they can, mm -hmm. you know, they're sharing dogs, they're sharing information about dogs, and they're using the CBARC, so they're all on the same page. They know what they're talking about when they talk about um, yeah. particular be behavioral characteristics. All right. Well, thanks again, and um, thanks for talking with me. It was my right. pleasure. Okay, now I'm going to hit the button that ends the recording part. You'll hear another little thing. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.